Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you're interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. For March, we are reading Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl by Renee Rosen. And for April, my selection is The Comeback Summer by writing duo Allie Brady. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I'm joined by Bali Kaur Jaswal to discuss Now You See Us. Bali is the author of five novels and her nonfiction has appeared in the New York Times, Cosmopolitan, Harper's Bazaar India, and Salon.com, among other publications. Born in Singapore and raised in Japan, Russia, and the Philippines, Jaswal studied creative writing at Hollins University in Virginia, and later worked as an English teacher in Australia and Turkey. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories, I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Welcome, Bali. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, Cindy. I am so glad you're here because I really, really enjoyed Now You See Us, and I can't wait to chat with you about it. Thank you. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I definitely did. I felt like it was a complete glimpse into another culture for me, something I didn't really know much about, and I'm really looking forward to talking more about it. So why don't you give me a quick synopsis of the book for those that won't have read it yet? Okay. So Now You See Us is set in present-day Singapore. And it's about three Filipina domestic workers who band together to uh, investigate and prove the innocence of another domestic worker who's been accused of murdering her employer. So how did you come up with the idea for this one? Well, <laughs> it's interesting because I I, um, I think of all the books that I've written, this one has, this story in a way has been with me the longest. I grew up in Singapore. And when I was 15, we, my family moved to the Philippines. When I was sort of in my teens, I think when I was sort of 13 around there, there was a, a very famous murder case here in Singapore where a domestic worker from the Philippines was accused and convicted for murdering her employer and I think her employer's son. And like everyone else in Singapore who only read sort of state-sponsored media, because um, that was the only media we had back then. That was kind of all I knew about the case was that she was guilty. And there was no doubt about that. It was, it was just this very absolute story. And it was very black and white. And then 
couple of years later, I moved to the Philippines. And every time I told someone that I was from Singapore, I got a very kind of, you know, a, a very strong reaction from people saying, well, why did your country execute one of ours? She was innocent. And it, it was at a time when I was starting to question a lot of things anyway. And I was starting to kind of think about, you know, how, how do we know what we know? And, 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 and how much do we know? You know, how, like, like, where are we getting the information from? And why is there only one place that we're getting all the information from? Going overseas kind of, you know, expanded my worldview a lot. And then hearing people talk about something and have a completely different perspective on it. So the Philippines news reported just a completely different investigation. It just had me thinking about all the things that we still don't know and about how the narrative can be very different across countries. So I wanted to write a story about that. And I wanted to write a story about something like that, but happening in today's time when there's social media and there are some alternative news sources and there are just more opportunities for people to get information out there and and find out more than they knew back in the 90s. Well, I agree with you that there are many more channels for finding out what happened day to day with things. But on the flip side of it, I feel like our news, at least here in the United States, has gotten so much more polarized that you really do have to kind of drill down and go to a variety of sources to try to get any sense for what really happened in almost any situation these days. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we still need a lot of media literacy wherever we are. Yes. So I felt like your story was timely for that purpose as well, just trying to take not take everything at face value for what you read immediately isn't necessarily what's going on. And it is always good to try to investigate a little bit more yourself. Maybe not as much as Cora and Angel and Danita did, but, you know, to, to try to track down the answers in more than one place. Yeah, certainly what they do with like, sort of, you know, they, they really get kind of hands on with the investigation and it does get quite dangerous. So I wouldn't recommend that to anyone, to everyone. But yeah, I think that 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 sort of that motivation, that necessity comes from, the, you know, the lives that they live as well, where they see day to day prejudices, they see day to day injustices. And they think, well, we can't, we can't really let one of our own slip between the cracks in, in, in a system that we know is kind of, you know, pitted against her. Oh, yes, I was rooting for them. I just wasn't advocating everybody go out and do that. But I thought that it was wonderful that they were doing it. And they they had lived it each in their own way, different injustices, and they understood, okay, there's something wrong here. Yes. Well, what kind of research did you do? Because some of the things you depict in the book were really hard to read. The maid agency with available workers in the window demonstrating how they clean, the way some of the workers were treated by their employers. How did you find some of these stories or how did you find similar stories to create your own? I would say that just living in Singapore, a lot of these things are quite normalized. It's interesting because I've heard already from a number of people from the US and from the UK saying that the novel, that those opening scenes feel to them almost like dystopian fiction or science fiction, you know, with the maid agencies and stuff. But that's, that's all very, um, par for the course here. Like you walk, you, you walk by these maid agencies, people use them. That sort of, of, you know, a, a certain level of, exploita- of, of exploitation, I think, is is quite accepted by a lot of people here. And so opening my eyes up to those details and realizing that they actually could fit into a narrative, I think I think I kind of had to switch off my, oh, this is everyday life <laughs> perspective and, and switch on my, okay, this, this is bizarre. This is actually very strange. And, 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 and this is something that I need to write about and I need that needs to be talked about. As far as other sorts of research that I did, I, I read quite a few accounts of domestic workers. So there are some 
anthologies that domestic workers have put together. There are, you know, nonprofits in Singapore, for example, that do really great work with them. There, there, there's also a, um, a literary um, nonprofit that that does um, workshops with the domestic workers and and does, you know, sort of poetry readings and things like that. So I attended a few of those sorts of events just to get a sense of what they were expressing about their lives and what the backstories were. And then I also talked to a number of domestic workers. I mean, I, I, I interviewed a lot of them and, and, and got them to kind of, you know, ask their networks if they would also be willing to talk to me. I have to say, unfortunately, a lot of the stories that I put into the novel or a lot of the, the things that happen, the mistreatment, things can get pretty bad, especially for Donita, but there's so much worse. There's, there's so much stuff that happens. There's so much abuse that occurs that I couldn't put into the novel just for the sake of tone because it would have just gotten too dark. I kind of hinted at it and I, and I created an environment where, you know, you, you could see how it could go down that road. Like the employers kind of have all the power and there are very few avenues, very few channels for the domestic workers to kind of get justice if things like that happen. There were, there, there are some truly horrific things as well as some really incredibly generous employers and incredibly, you know, kind and, and, and very happy um, working environments. Unfortunately, though, there, there's some, some, some things that were just too dark to put in the novel. That's so depressing. Yeah. Well, I did feel like it was a little dystopian to think about walking down the street and look in a window and see somebody cleaning like, you know, that they were auditioning for a job. So that's fascinating to me that that's something that's standard there. Yeah. I would say that the women in the windows, those maid agencies, I think those they do exist. I don't think you'd be walking down the street and see them necessarily. I think you'd be sort of looking for them. Like you'd go into a, a, you know, a building perhaps that has lots of maid agencies. And if you, if you, if you walk around, you'd be able to find one of those where, you know, there's, there's someone in the window. I think people here are, a a number of people I know are are fairly freaked out by those as well, which is a good sign. I think, you know, like there's enough of kind of like, isn't this absurd? Isn't this really absurd that there's a woman standing in the window just like, you know, wiping a table uh, repeatedly so that she can get a job? So those things are strange. But again, not, I don't think enough people think it's absurd because they're still there. Very true. Well, I considered your book a social commentary and I was looking at reviews and people were saying the same. So in Singapore, are most of the domestic workers from other countries? I was trying to get a sense for that, and it felt like they were from reading your book, but I was just curious if that was in fact the case. They are, yeah. It works on that economy of scale where, you know, the amount that you would pay a domestic worker from Indonesia or the Philippines would go a very long way in the currency of their country. So a number of domestic workers that I spoke to had worked in Singapore for a few years, cleaning houses and, and being nannies and, and chefs and, 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 you know, home chefs or whatever, and then built you know, beautiful houses back in the Philippines for their entire families, supported their siblings through college. So that, that money stretches a long way, whereas you wouldn't be able to pay someone from Singapore to do that. That money just wouldn't go a very long way in, in, uh, if you were living your life in Singapore. And the other thing is they, you can't hire, it, it's quite difficult to hire live out help because it's a very small country and there, there just isn't space for people, for, for, for this entire workforce that comes here. There, just, there, there wouldn't be rooms for them to rent. There wouldn't be apartments for them. So as a result, they have to live with you. So it's kind of a choice between not having someone to pick up your kid from school if you're working late and we are expected to work very long hours here or 
you know, having someone live in your home. There's kind of, there's not really much in between unless you're, you're lucky and you get some really good arrangement where you have someone who's Singaporean who, and, and you can, you can pay them, you know, a, a very high salary. So it's, it's quite tricky. It's, it's, it's an infrastructure that kind of, um, yeah, that a lot of people depend on for, and, and, and it seems sort of mutually beneficial as long as, you know, there's employment, not exploitation, I think. Exactly. Kind and humane treatment, treat them as an employee, not as chattel or whatever, which it seemed like a few of the people did. And as you said, I'm sure there's a wide range. Some people are very benevolent and helpful and nice and others are not nearly as kind. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely a range. Well, what about your book being selected as Marie Claire's March book club pick? That's so exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. Yeah, I only found out a couple of days ago, so it's really nice. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, you have lived a variety of places in the world. How does that inform your writing? I suppose having lived in a number of different places gave me an acute sense of storytelling from an outside perspective. So, you know, uh, moving to Japan when I was, I don't know, I think I was six years old and people asking where you're from. And I think, you know, for, for some people, it's as easy as saying Minnesota, <laughs> you know, or uh, India. And for me, it was, oh, I'm from Singapore, but I also, Singapore is a majority Chinese country. So a lot of people didn't expect someone who looked like me, because I'm, I'm Indian, to say they were from Singapore. So there's a lot of explaining, there's a lot of defending, and there, you know, even to my teachers who didn't quite get it, and then, you know, when you when you continue to move, like you move back to Singapore, then you have to kind of explain, you know, where you've been and, and, and why you were there. So there's always this this sense that like even my identity was a narrative that had to be reiterated. And so I, I think identity is a big theme in, in the things that I write. And then also just looking at, I think, feeling a little bit like a reporter or an observer of things in the world around me, because we, you know, I, I didn't migrate to those countries I sort of dipped into them for three years sometimes it just felt like this sort of anthropological study of the world like this is this is the way we're going to live for three years and this is the way people do things here and you just get this kind of this this really nice kind of immersion in a place that is full of stories and full of things that you can't wait to tell people we moved a decent amount growing up and we went abroad once while I was young and then once when I was out of the house but I would visit my parents a lot and I just felt like in addition to being comfortable moving different places, meeting new people, I also learned so much about partly different parts of the country, but also different countries themselves and what it was like to live different places. I just felt it made me hopefully more open-minded. Yeah, I think it does. I think, I think there's also, though, a tendency for some people to get more stuck in their ways when they go abroad because they get kind of frightened about what's around them. And and that was something that I, I I noticed as well. Like and, and and I think that's something that goes into my books as well. This idea of like holding on to your roots and being quite adamant that like things won't change. In my previous novels, not so much with this one. I, I really kind of was really I was really interested in the way that like you know immigrants from India would would go to um, the UK, for example, and it felt like their culture and their lives and language were really fossilized in a particular time that they wanted desperately to pass down to their children because they didn't want to lose their children culturally. And, and that to me was fascinating because like, you know, you, you're in the middle of London and, and yet like you're, you're living as if you're in India in the 1960s or in a small village in India in the 1960s. It was, it's always been really fascinating to me that like a world can exist in another world. 
And I think with now UCS, that's that's what I was so interested in is that the interior lives of these women are entire worlds that so many people in Singapore know so little about, even though like a lot of these women work in our homes and live among us. And I just wanted to explore like, what is that world like? Because it's a whole universe. It's a whole world with its own culture, its own customs, its own language, its own version of Singapore that like I, I will never see as an outsider. So I wanted to kind of, you know, bring people into it and, and go into it myself. And see the big divide between the two. Absolutely. Yeah. That they can exist together and still be so different. So of the three main characters, Cora, Angel, and Donita, who was the hardest to write and who was the easiest? I think Donita was the easiest because she was the most fun. Like she was the most rebellious. She was, you know, she she said all the things that I wanted to say to that awful employer that she has. And and creating their dynamic as 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 difficult as it is, as as you know, as challenging as it is for her to work for this woman. It was just fun. It was full of conflict. And that's always fun to write. I think Angel might have been the hardest to write because she's kind of going, she's going through this heartbreak and this loss. And she's also living in this home that's very quiet. And, and there's, there's, there's loss in that home as well. And there was something about her character that I couldn't put my finger on until the whole story came together. Whereas like Cora had an arc, Donita had an arc and Angel kind of floundered a little bit because her arc was gentler and, 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 and quieter in that it was about heartbreak and it was about loss. And she had her own grief and then was living through the grief that was in the household where she was working. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a lot. And it, it was it was a bit of a challenge sometimes to kind of maintain the same tone that I had, you know, for Cora and Donita and maintain the same beat, I suppose, in the story and, and, and not weigh it down with what was going on with Angel. So I had to keep her pretty active in the narrative. I think that was where I found the character. I, I decided to create this this maid who is very self-sufficient and who quietly just does all the things, even though she's not trained to do them. You know, she learns, she goes on YouTube, she becomes, you know, she, she's basically a physiotherapist for, for um, her employer, but she's also been a nanny. She's also been a sleep trainer. She's also done, you know, she, she's helped the kids with their spelling lists. Like I wanted to show just how, how many roles these women take on. And often it's very thankless. It's just kind of taken for granted that, you know, like you're in our house, you'll do everything. You'll do all the things that we don't do. You'll fill in all the gaps. I really enjoyed Cora and her humor because she just couldn't quite figure out the woman that she's working for. And she's like, okay, wait a minute. You know, and so I just, I just loved her responses. I laughed out loud at times. Oh, I'm so glad. I, I was really happy that I stumbled on that sort of story because I knew that I wanted sort of an antithesis to Donita and Mrs. Fun, which is such an awful dynamic. And it's such a, it's, it, there's just, there's so much strife and, and, and anger. And so I wanted, you know, some, I wanted to also show that, you know, some employers can be very nice, except Elizabeth Lee, her employer just steps over the line without realizing it. Like, you know, doesn't understand that, like other, what other people will say about her taking her maid out, you know, for lunch doesn't understand that there are all these hierarchies and that Cora actually feels very awkward about those things and that Cora doesn't want to share her life with her. She just wants to keep her head down and work. So I thought that was an interesting thing to, to, to negotiate as well. It definitely was. And then you bring in Mrs. Lee's children, who one of them is like, what is happening here? Thinking Cora is trying to insinuate <laughs> herself into their life. And Cora's like, I'm just trying to do my job. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that 
that happens. I do think that, I mean, the narrative I often hear from friends is that like, they can't believe how intolerant their parents are towards their domestic workers. But I've also seen the other way around. I've seen it where like the friends have, or that the kids have left the household and they have their own lives. And the, you know, parents who are aging or who are widowed, like Mrs. Lee, don't really have a confidant. I don't really have someone there. And so they kind of develop this closeness to the domestic worker that the kids feel very weird about. And they're kind of like, oh, what, what's going to happen? Like, is she, is she moving in? Is she going to, you know, take the inheritance or something? So I was, I, I really, I, that, that story really fascinated me. And I, want, I wanted to, to chase that. It really resonated with me, not because I had a situation where I was worried that a domestic worker was insinuating herself into my dad's life, but my dad was really ill for a couple of years and we had a lot of help with him and I knew how lonely he was. And so I was so grateful for those people when I couldn't be there that were there with him. And so I could see how that situation was playing out. I knew Mrs. Lee was lonely. She needed the companion. And so I really was glad you had incorporated that storyline. Good. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm glad too. Yes, it resonated with me. Well, tell me about the title. Yeah, so now you see us. I have a very hard time with titles. I tend to think of them only at the end of the book, with the exception of erotic stories for Punjabi widows. That one I thought of right away. As soon as I thought of the premise, I thought that's that's the book I'm going to write. With Now You See Us, the original title was Saving it was Saving Flor de Liza Martinez, because that's the name of the woman who um, is accused of murder. And I wasn't crazy about it kind of a working title i'm not crazy about putting a name in the title and so mm-hmm. i i had kind of a, a discussion with my editor and agent i mean we went back and forth on a couple of different titles i can't remember we thought about like some filipino proverbs that we could use but they all just didn't quite fit and seemed just a little too it just seemed a little too forced to try to use them like it was you know it, it d- didn't just didn't match and i think i just started thinking about the the attitude of the women, the approach that they were taking and the big message that they wanted to give to to the rest of the society that they lived in. And I thought, you know, this would be just such a fist pumping moment to say, now you see us, you know, when something goes wrong, then you see us. Or when we, when we, you know, make a bit of noise or when we protest, then you see us. The rest of the time we're supposed to be invisible. I think invisibility was such a big thing. And it's, it's, it's such a big thing throughout the novel that you know there's there, there are different degrees of invisibility that are expected of all of them and i just wanted to have have a title that 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 really kind of showed them or reflected how much these women assert themselves in this story and how much they they reclaim i guess i thought it was the perfect title because that's exactly what happens they do assert themselves and they're like now you see us we're going to be here and we're going to try to take care of this problem yeah. Yeah. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Well, what about including a mystery in this book? Is this the first time you've written a mystery? No. So I included a mystery in erotic stories for Punjabi widows, which I don't think a lot of people were expecting. And, and that was, that was hard. I mean, I, I didn't know how to write a mystery. I was on a lot of sort of murder chat boards or like, you know, a lot of like murder writer kind of uh, forums to try to figure out like, how do I do like, do I work backwards? Like, how do I, you know, make it seem like it's it's like there's a suspect, but they're not the real culprit and do all of that and create a twist? I felt like with Now You See Us, I think that was the core of the novel. I did want to, you know, write something that was sort of a character study of 
domestic workers in Singapore, but also have a story that sort of that that draws them all together and that brings the reader into different places in their lives. And so I think for for this one, I started with the premise of the murder and then I just went, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out as we go along. I'll let the story kind of reveal itself to me and I'll let the the maids kind of, you know, do their own investigating and their own snooping and, and ask questions that then I'll ask as well. And I'll try to answer. And I tried to work work backwards a little bit from that. Did that work? It did. Yeah, somehow. <laughs> I think what <laughs> helped what helped as well was that I was writing this novel in uh, Singapore, you know, in present day Singapore. So it was very much like part of the landscape, like where Mrs. Fun uh, lives is, is, is my old neighborhood in Singapore. So I, and, and I, I don't live far from there now. So I would walk around there quite a bit. And that gives you a lot of ideas. You're like, oh, like she could be hiding behind this tree. And like, you know, oh, like the murderer might've come in from this door or something. You know, you start, you start kind of putting the pieces together because you visualize things and you see things and you and, and little situations come up as you're walking around where you think, oh, maybe that can contribute to it as well. And th- th- that doesn't necessarily happen if you're just sitting and, and relying on your imagination and your memory. Well, that's true. And mysteries are just so much fun to read. And I'm assuming they're so much fun to write. Yeah, they can be frustrating. <laughs> but, but yeah, they, they, once, once all the pieces fall together, they can be fun. Well, that's good. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? So I've read a book that is coming out, it's coming out tomorrow, although I'm not sure when this airs. So it's um, The Theory of Not Quite Everything by Kara Nader. It's very good. It's a very, very sweet novel about a, a brother and sister. And All This Could Be Different by Sarah Thankham Matthews. And The Vibrant Years by Sonali Dev, which I ha- I must admit, I haven't finished yet, but I've, I've, I'm, I'm in the middle of it and I can safely recommend it. I think it's so good. Oh, good. I've read some of her earlier books, but I haven't read this one. And that's the launch of the Mindy's Book Studio, the Mindy Kaling imprint. Yeah, it's very exciting. I know, super exciting. I just interviewed her second book that's coming in April by Lauren Thoman today. So I was excited to, to learn about that one as well. Good. Well, Bali, thank you so much for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I, As I mentioned, I loved Now You See Us, and I can't wait for it to make its way out into the world. Thank you so much, Cindy. It was a pleasure. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. 
Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.